You're listening to Seeing and Believing, a film and television podcast that searches for the sacred on screen. I'm Wade Bearden. My co-host, Kevin McLenathan, is out today, so I'm joined by Groundhouse Theology's Blake Collier. We'll be talking all things Stephen King. First up is Andreas Muschietti's It Chapter 2, and then the 1983 picture from David Cronenberg, The Dead Zone. It's evil clowns and psychic abilities on this episode, episode 216 of Seeing and Believing. When uh, Mike called me, I threw up. When Mike called me, I crashed my car. Seriously? Yeah. Man, I hear you. I mean, my heart was literally like pounding right out of my chest. I thought it was only me. It was like pure fear. It's fear. Why do we all feel like that, Mike? You remember something we don't, don't you, Mike? Something happens to you when you leave this town. The farther away, the hazier it all gets. But me, I never left. So yeah, I remember all of it. Pennywise. Listeners, we are here with episode 216, and I am joined by Blake Collier. He is a columnist and editor at Real World Theology. He also contributes to Mockingbird, Rise Up Daily, and Groundhouse Theology. Blake, thanks so much for joining me, stepping into Kevin's shoes today on the episode. Oh, man. I don't know how Kevin feels about this. (laughs) (laughs) Hey, you know what? Hopefully he's jealous. Hopefully no, he feels just. We can only hope. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I'm excited to have you on. I think this is the f- second time. I know. I know you've sent in clips before, but we had you on yes. for a full show in the past. And anytime that I see a horror movie or I hear about a horror film coming out that people are interested in, I always think to myself. What does Blake think about that movie? Because you are the <laughs> horror guy for me personally. So I'm oh, glad, well, that I'm glad to hear that. That comes with high praise. <laughs> yeah. So and I'm I'm still learning. I'm I'm a horror uh, Padawan and uh, not necessarily my thing, but I've been watching more horror films probably in the last four or five years than I have you know in the past. And so uh, yeah, it's great to read your work. I'm excited to jump into this film based on the terrifying novel by Stephen King. The It series follows a group of bullied kids and then bullied adults as they match wits with Pennywise the Clown, played by Bill Skarsgård, an evil demon who feasts off the flesh of vulnerable children. It Chapter 2 picks up 27 years after 2017's It, bringing the now-grown-up cast, which features Jessica Chastain, James McAvoy, Bill Hader, among others, back to Derry, Maine, to battle Pennywise once again. Okay, Blake, so I just set you up as this horror expert, and (laughs) I remember hearing you talk about it when it came out two years ago. Uh, but I'd mm-hmm. love to hear your thoughts on it now after you have seen the sequel. What did you think of the first film? And then how did Chapter 2 fare in relation to its predecessor? So in Chapter 1, I remember seeing uh, in, in theaters, the, 
I feel like it was the night, opening night. And I came out of it largely enjoying my experience of it. Um, and that was mainly because I had a, a good good friend that, that I watched it with, and both of us were our big horror fans. And uh, he, this was a movie that he was deeply looking forward to because it's a story that he's always liked. Mm-hmm. And, and so I think I was feeding off of that uh, quite a bit in my like of the film. But... But I recognized in the the days following, I started seeing uh, small problems with the film uh, in different spaces. Um, I think I, I started to see, or started to be a little more disappointed with um, what I sensed to be a, a failure to trust Skarsgård completely in his portrayal of Pennywise uh, by the use of CGI in the first one. Mm-hmm. Um, I felt like in the same way that the miniseries in ninety or nineteen ninety uh, allowed Tim Curry to kind of just chew the scenery, uh, I really wanted to see that in this in these two films, and and I felt like we got a good sense of Skarsgård and his ability to really, really you know pull off this role, and I just it felt like they before they let him to go fully into the role, they had to like pull back and rely on on cgi to kind of fill spaces where i didn't feel like they trusted him as an actor and and largely i think that was mainly because he was untested uh in 2000 2017 he hadn't really kind of come on the scene i think it was what made him kind of have a name and so i can understand the hesitancy but seeing some of his his work in those kind of more intimate non-CGI spaces really just um, was astounding to me and, and really matched uh, the, the brilliance of Tim Curry in what was an otherwise relatively forgettable miniseries. Mm. Um, and so part of that was, was that, and then part of it was the fact that as someone who's read the novel um, and someone who's read a few Stephen King novels, uh, the beauty of the book is... Uh, the intertwining of the stories between them as kids and them as adults. Uh, and to separate that in the way that they did between the two films um, really takes away some of the the narrative and thematic thrust uh, that the novel just gets so well. Um, and so while I wasn't opposed to the way, to the idea of separating it that way, I felt like the first one uh, and larger with the second one could have handled it a little bit better. Uh, maybe interweaving a few things, giving us foreshadowing in the first film and giving us a little bit more um, tie-in with the past, which they tried to do in the second one. So um, the first one, I think it was enjoyable, but ultimately over time I kind of started to lose my... Uh, my enjoyment of it as I kind of started breaking down elements that I, th- I found to be kind of weak. So mm-hmm. it was a mixed review on the whole. You know, Kevin and I reviewed it a couple years ago, and I was mostly positive on the movie. It was, you mentioned your experience, it was a great, wild experience watching mm-hmm. it in theaters. I tried to see it, my brother and I tried to see it with another friend. Uh, my friend got separated because it was just so packed. People were freaked out. 
It was it. Mm-hmm. I mean, the the theater was full. There was a red robin outside the theater, and there were red balloons oh, wow. kind of everywhere because they give away balloons. <laughs> and everybody comes out. It's just an insane scene when the movie's over. I watch a hit and run in the parking lot. It was just oh wow! It's you know it's like one thirty, two a.m. in the morning. It's just a crazy experience. I had a lot of fun with the movie, and of course I felt like it had weaknesses. And then I watched the movie with my wife Priscilla a couple of weeks ago, and it just didn't work as well for me. And I think part mm-hmm. of it is because there's a large portion of that movie where characters are just kind of wandering around and Mm -hmm. Pennywise is chasing them or causing them to experience some sort of horror scene and those didn't last like they did when I first saw the movie of course there's Mm -hmm. there's some imagery that I do like I I like the imagery of Beverly's hair in the sink and what that means for her and it kind of just reaches out and grabs her so there are some good scenes it just it didn't really follow through like I thought it would and then I go into this movie and you didn't mention it Blake I I think I think your criticisms of the film are spot-on you didn't mention it but this movie is almost three hours long it is incredibly long and once again, we get into the territory of characters just kind of wandering around, and they're, they're jump scares galore all over this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think even more than that is I felt like many of the character arcs in this film were the same character arcs in the last film. And yeah. I'm thinking of particularly Bill, the character who's played by James McAvoy here, and Georgie. And so in the first film, the big kind of climactic moment, and I thought it was a good moment, is is Bill basically letting go of Georgie and in a sense kind of letting go of of kind of that guilt or the hope that he would return. And obviously he knows that here, but there's the guilt still. And so it feels like rehashing. And I don't know if the film added any new shades to that. I think this movie could have been about childhood trauma and how that trauma enacts long-term effects but other than broad strokes i don't know if we get to the root of these repressed memories and the effects Mm -hmm. of that abuse instead we just kind of revisit it and 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 that's it and as a result i almost felt like we were watching the same movie twice if that makes sense yeah, no, I I think you're spot on with that with that criticism. Um, I think for me, it's 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 they didn't know really for an effective way of telling the story that in the way that they did, they would almost have to film uh, both both of them at the same time, um, I, or write the screenplays at the same time at least. Mm-hmm. And I and I feel like they they probably had some time in between those those projects because they didn't know the you know, how successful the first one was going to be. Yeah. Um, and so that's the kind of the <laughs> the problem of making a potential you know franchise or series of films is is you just you you're putting everything into that first film hoping that it it actually makes money so you can make more but in order to get really a a consistency between films you almost have to write them side by side 
um, and and to film them side by side. That way, you have this kind of you know movement uh, and this thematic movement from film to film. Because uh, I agree, I, I think on the whole, uh, you're basically seeing uh, these these adult characters facing the same troubles, the same fears that they had as kids, and yet it almost feels like their responses and how they approach um, quote-unquote healing themselves is basically the same as the kids. And, you know, if you've lived a life where you've made it past a certain point uh, age-wise, you know that the way you you heal and the way you move uh, in life changes drastically from when you were a kid. And so part of it for me was just seeing that there's just not a whole lot of like these people had to be in stasis um, mm. for a long time to act in the way that they did in the second film, and on top of that, I I feel like this is a film that has really good individual set pieces um, that are punctuated by, like you said, a bunch of characters wandering around, um, which is kind of the nature of the first film, and I think. On the whole, the first film, probably because of its length and because they were putting so much of themselves into that film to make it be as profitable as possible, they probably were trying to make it as tight and as cohesive as possible. And I think it, this one feels a little luxurious. Um, <laughs> I feel like they could have cut some off and, and it wouldn't have taken away anything significant. While there were certain set pieces I really enjoyed watching... Um, it just didn't quite all tie together for me. Yeah, and I, I you know, I didn't mention, uh, but this film is also directed by Andy Muschietti, who directed the first film, and so yes. there is this visual style and, and I think a, an energy that's kind of carried over. And you do make a good mm-hmm. point that this was not filmed at the same time. This was a script that was written afterwards, and so there are some movements with the characters. And some revelations that feel they feel a little odd because we didn't even see we didn't see it coming at all in the first mm-hmm. film, and it felt less like a twist and more like oh we've got to find a way to heighten the drama. So let's you know let's mm-hmm. add this. I, yeah, I. So the idea is these characters are, are coming back to town and they forget, with the exception of Mike's character they forget what happened and as they connect with each other as they return to where they grew up those memories come back and that's a great example of repressed memories and Mm -hmm. how we tend to kind of forget our past in order to move forward and i like that idea and i i would assume that's kind of embedded within the book there's also the sense that what happened long ago can actually grow within us and actually mm-hmm. yes. hurt us in in the long term. And I, at the beginning of the movie, as I'm seeing these details, I'm I'm getting kind of excited because okay, there's some great territory here. Uh, I just it just feels a little cheap too because these characters they they move forward by basically basically they just. There's there's almost like a light switch where it's like, oh, okay, well, 
I've got to let you go. Or, oh, okay, I know that I am loved. And that's that's not really how it works. And when people experience trauma, especially trauma that has occurred a long time ago and that affects our entire lives, it's not really just a light bulb moment that changes everything. And I, I don't know... I don't know where the film I don't know where the film went off track, but by the end it felt yeah. very unsatisfying. Well, I think that's that that's where the the setup of the film or the two films is is its weakness. Um and and in some ways I think it is a very difficult novel to film um because where the the characters really get built on in the novel are these these constant um, movements between uh, young Ben and old Ben? Like you have chapters right next to each other, where one chapter is is about a, the kid, and then another section about the kid as an adult. And oh, so wow. you have this this movement, like you, it's it's so combined, like it goes back and forth. And so you're seeing how these characters have shifted. Uh, from kids to now and 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 showing how that trauma affects them like in the immediate aftermath of the events that happen in their childhood and 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 so that movement back and forth really builds those characters in a very unique way and kind of separating that uh in the two films is makes it almost difficult for any screenwriter uh in, you know and Doverman is is pretty pretty well like well known for his his screenplay at this point he's done several uh hits uh and so he's he's not he's not an amateur mm-hmm. um but i would i would imagine that even the best screenplay uh could would miss uh the the nuances of that of the way the novel kind of flows uh, and that's that's the hard part for me. And I'm not one of those people that has to, you know, the novel, ha- the movie has to follow the novel mm-hmm. word for word. I I actually, if if they get the tone of the of the book right, I'm usually happy. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's just something about that novel that it lends itself to that character building naturally, and it's really hard to do when you separate it uh, like they did. And so that was part of my concern going into the second film. Is I was like. We saw the kid story in the first one. I wonder how they're going to really kind of associate that. And, and they tried. And, and there were some that were effective. And there were some that felt kind of, I felt like they kind of laid there uh, as far as being explanatory uh, for the, the adult character's actions. Um, but, yeah, it's just hard. It's hard to, to get that narrative flowing. And... And like you said, that memory, that idea of memory and, and remembering our trauma is just ripe, especially in this day and age, mm-hmm. uh, for exploration. And and it never felt like they went beyond the surface for me. Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah. Yeah, and, and I think, too, the idea, I, I have not seen, I have not read the book, I haven't seen the miniseries. This does feel like uh, a story that would fit within a miniseries well. And I did mm. like the transitions between the childhood scenes and the adult scenes here. And mm-hmm. what yeah. the camera would do is kind of maybe just 
watch some characters ride away on the bike and they would go and then the camera would pan and then suddenly there's Jessica Chastain and really kind of blurring the line between the past and the present because, of course, that's what trauma does. There's Mm -hmm. another scene where we get uh, the camera almost below this puzzle and it cuts up and we can see in between where the pieces haven't been placed, we can see characters. And I, I appreciated the way that those transitions were made because, as I yeah. mentioned, they're kind of cutting between the past and the present. And then there was some, there was some good imagery. I, I will say there's a scene at the very beginning where we see a lot of red balloons. I thought that mm-hmm. was uh, visually arresting. There's a scene under the bleachers with Pennywise. And yes. it's one of those scenes, and it kind of goes back to what you're talking about, Blake, where it allows Skarsgård to just kind of act. And yeah. he has this, of course, creepy but almost inviting presence, sort of mm-hmm. magnetic, and I really I, I appreciate that. Uh, and then the I, I do think some of the, the scare scenes were done well. There's one with Jessica Chastain, and we've seen a lot of it in that extended trailer scene. Yes. But when we actually get to see the scary creature, I thought it was I thought it was pretty frightening. But other than that, mm-hmm. I was I was kind of disappointed with those scare scenes and would have wished that Muschietti would have put a little more thought into it because he has an eye. It's just a matter mm-hmm. of utilizing that eye as he does in, you know, in other scenes. Yeah, and 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 I like the fact that he's he's making a lot of allusions to to older horror films. Uh, you know, there's a there's a very uh, blunt uh, homage to the thing uh, when we look at Stanley's head mm-hmm. uh, grow legs, and and for me giving homage to a film that was uh, wholly done through practical effects by basically doing a CGI version of it feels a little disingenuous, but that's partially <laughs> because I'm a practical effects guy. Yeah. Um, I, I like to see things. I like to marvel at human, uh, human inventiveness and, and CGI while useful and, and helpful in a lot of ways. Um, I'm by no means anti CGI, uh, I feel like it gets a little overused at times. Um, and part of, I think, creativity is constraint. Um, not having the budget or having the the tools that you need, and so figuring out ways around it. Uh, I think that's where creativity really shines for uh, filmmakers. And so um, that was not the case with this film. I mean, I, I feel like he probably had uh, the budget he wanted, uh, and especially after the success of the first film. And... and and I feel like that might have been a little bit of a limit upon him, um, really kind of contemplating how he wanted to visually show this film. Um, but one other thing uh, that I wanted to bring up real quick is what what I really feel like the two both films miss uh, thematically that I I really think the novel nails, and I think is kind of the whole point of the story in itself is. Pennywise ultimately becomes the uh, the face of small town evil. Um, Pennywise is is this evil clown, but but really he's a stand-in for the apathy and the distrust and the 
corruption that happens in this in, in Derry, Maine. Um, and what the novel does with that is basically it shows you, yeah, Pennywise is this alien being, but he's just aggravating all that's bad in this town. And while there's elements in both films that I think really that start to kind of dig into that idea, especially the first scene uh, of this second film, um, it largely just lays there. And um, it goes back to this idea that no, it's just this one being that we have to be afraid of. Uh, it's not the worst parts of, of our of our being, of our town and of ourselves. Uh, and so that's that's always something I look forward to in adaptations of this of this novel is because that's kind of the point. It's to point out that uh, corruption, is closer to us than we think, um, and and we do well to to take that into account uh, when we're living in different places. So I, you know, I think the first film for me actually did that pretty well because mm-hmm. n- there are no redeeming adults in that entire yeah, movie. That's true. And so for Pennywise, who preys on children, it's very evident that. Right, whether he's here or not, this town doesn't care about their kids, and I, 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 I really appreciate that. Here, we get nothing almost. I don't think yeah. we get anything with the town at all. That other than that first scene you mentioned, and and two, Mike's character, he's played by Isaiah Mustafa. He, it's strange. He's the only one that stays in in the city, and everyone else goes off. And they're all pretty. They're all pretty well off. They they're all wealthy. And he's in this town. He hasn't had a chance to leave. Of course, his parents were drug addicts who were killed in a fire. We learn about that in the first film. And there's mm-hmm. something to be said there about race and about this town and about opportunities. And and nothing comes of it. In fact, he just, I mean, he disappears for a large portion of the movie. And so Mm -hmm. I share your concern, especially with the second movie, that there's nothing done to talk about Pennywise as an evil force and, as you mentioned, a good phrase, as a face for the town of Derry. Mm -hmm. Well, and and that was a, I remember that there was a lot of pushback on the first film from certain areas of the internet that talked about simply uh, Mike's character being largely absent from the first film. And, and if you remember, he, he doesn't have a significant role in the first film. Mm-hmm. Um, so whenever I saw that he was going to have a little bit more of a forward position in this film at the beginning, I was thinking, oh, okay. So th- they're starting to correct a few things, and, and, and I'm liking where this is going. But even then, like as I went through the movie, I was just like, no, no, they're they're putting him on screen more, but I feel like he's not actually changing anything or addressing. Like, I feel like they're they're basically just fixing the or they're they're correcting the first film's flaws by basically uh, putting him on the screen more. Yeah, <laughs> and mm-hmm. so and and while and while I you know I I actually thought he he was one of the the, the best parts in as far as acting went. Uh, I, I would have liked to have seen a lot more, um, a little bit more of a serious take on his character and a little bit more 
development there. Uh, I feel like the rest of them had at least a little bit more than, than he did. And um, I feel like Bill Hader probably got the most. Uh, he was the, he's the one that people have been uh, praising, uh, I feel like, the most. And so... And and I think he was easily the the standout, um, even though I think his character was easily just as um, kind of constrained as the remainder of the characters. Yeah, so. yeah, it definitely a lively part of a film that for me was kind of uneventful, and so I did gravitate towards him as a performer here and as a character because it 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 was just more interesting than anything else um that's putting all my cards on the table listeners that is our review of it chapter two we would love to get your thoughts on the film if you are on twitter make sure to tweet us at c belief pod at c belief pod you can also email us seeing and believing capc at gmail.com Don't go anywhere. We're going to hop into a review of another Stephen King adaptation, David Cronenberg's The Dead Zone. We'll be right back in just a moment. song is Poisonous Tentacles by Stephen Mellon. Listeners, I want to thank all of you who've taken the time to rate and review the show on iTunes. It's super helpful for us when you rate and review our show. So hop on to iTunes if you can and just type in Seeing and Believing. You can go from there, give us a star rating or type out a review. We also very much appreciate all of our Patreon supporters who take an opportunity to support the work that we do at Seeing and Believing. If you'd like to support us, just go to patreon.com forward slash seeing underscore believing underscore podcast. If you have any questions about the podcast, or maybe you just want to send in your thoughts, you can always do that on Twitter at CBeliefPod, at CBeliefPod, or you can email us seeingandbelievingcapc at gmail.com. <laughs> Amy! 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 Amy!
screaming. Amy's screaming. It's not too late. Your daughter's screaming. Hurry up! Well, listeners, our Stephen King-centric episode continues with a look at David Cronenberg's The Dead Zone, a 1983 adaptation of King's 1979 novel of the same name. To get us started, here's the movie's official synopsis. When Johnny Smith, played by Christopher Walken, awakens from a coma caused by a car accident, he finds that years have passed and he now has psychic abilities. Heartbroken that his girlfriend, played by Brooke Adams, has moved on with her life, Johnny also must contend with his unsettling powers, which allow him to see a person's future with a mere touch. So Blake, to date, over 30 of King's books have been adapted into theatrical releases, and that's not even counting those made for the small screen. As we begin this review, I'd love to know, uh, what are some of your favorite King adaptations? And then, where does The Dead Zone fall on that on that list? So, I because I tend to be that, that person, I'm going to give a couple of uh, kind of maybe more obscure mm-hmm. uh, choices. I, I like many of the same ones that, that most people uh, like, you know, The Mist. Um, I, I like The Shining to some extent, although it's it's kind of uh, dropped in my estimation over time. Um, but there there are many of his adaptations that, that I would agree with with the general consensus on. Um, but a couple of them that I would like to bring to the to the front uh, that kind of get looked over. Uh, one is the 1998 film Ad, uh, Apt Pupil uh, that has, stars uh, Ian McKellen and Brad Renfro. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is based on a short story um, from Stephen King. Um, and for any of those people who want to read Stephen King and start with his short stories, they're easily his best work. Um, but I would say Apt Pupil is this really fascinating story about this boy discovering that uh, the old man uh, next door is basically a uh, Nazi general who is in hideout and as he learns this and he tries to expose the old man things go awry and it's a really tense and taut thriller um that i remember seeing when it came out and literally got no love uh but (laughs) i remember it being really um it really stirred me uh deep down and kind of got under my skin uh when i saw it uh back in those days uh, the other one is one that I um, I really grew to appreciate. I, I kind of revisited it. I, it had been several years since I'd seen it, and I had read Salem's Lot in the meantime, and it's the 1979 version of Salem's Lot by Toby Hooper, which was a uh, made-for-TV movie, but because of Toby Hooper's, um, the, that period of Toby Hooper's career, uh, it feels more like an actual mainstream film. Mm. Um, it has one of my favorite representations of a modern vampire uh, on screen uh, to this date. And so um, it's it's really compelling. And it was kind of marks the end of what I consider to be Hooper's uh, best filmmaking. Uh, afterwards, he kind of started to descend uh, in his quality, uh, at least in my opinion. So... Uh, those are the two that that I want to bring to the forefront. Um, but I think the Dead Zone for me is one that sticks out as a, a 
it would be in my top three favorite King adaptations. Mm. Um, it's got two things going for it. Uh, one, Christopher Walken, who is a, a perennial favorite of mine. Um, and then David Cronenberg, who as a, the horror guy, as you call me, um, I, I adore Cronenberg and I love his penchant for body horror. Um, and I just enjoy his how he brings philosophical ideas into the realm of, of dread and horror. And really, I think what I like about this film so much is that Cronenberg really um, is restrained in this film. Like, he really, he does elements of this film in a way that he almost... Like, I would have expected him to go a little bit more over the top, and yet he pulls back a little bit. And, and I was just... But I remember the first time I saw this film, I was just amazed that he was so in touch with the, the, the material that he was willing to kind of pull back and say, that's not... Like, what my I normally am known for is, is not going to work for this. This is going to take a little bit of a different touch. And... I think he just allowed Christopher Walken to be that over-the-top element in the film uh, because Christopher Walken is over-the-top in just about everything he's in. <laughs> and and he's, he's, he's a joy to watch. Uh, he brings a smile to my face every time I watch him. So I, I just feel like within the scope of Cronenberg's career, before he hits The Fly, which is his next film, that's kind of the film that made him a known quantity and so to see this film, such a small kind of quiet film in a lot of ways, um, kind of enter into his filmography at this point is is really telling for me as to what kind of director he is. Um, and so it's one, like, I, I love the concept of the film. I love the idea of uh, this film surrounding this man who awakes from a, a coma and finds himself with this power that he doesn't know how to control. Uh, it is slowly killing him uh, as he uses it, and he doesn't know what to do with it, and, and he doesn't know what to do with the knowledge that it gives him. And so it's this classic idea of, and this question gets asked in the film at one point, is if you knew that, uh, if you knew that, that a kid was going to become Adolf Hitler, would you go back and would you kill him? And this idea that, like, if you knew the future, would you do something about it? And would you take extreme measures? And I think that's what really the idea that drives this film. Uh, because he's struggling with this idea of, like, with this power, how do I act in a way that is going to be suitable uh, and moral uh, and not taking advantage of the power that I have? And it's really fascinating. You know, I... I am glad that we reviewed this film or we're reviewing this film because I watched this for the first time here just recently. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I mentioned a couple years ago when we reviewed it that I have not read a Stephen King novel. I have read his nonfiction book on writing, which is amazing. I think it's really, mm -hmm. really great. I haven't seen a ton of adaptations. Of course, I've seen the big ones. I, I like The Shining. I don't think it's a perfect film, but I, I do like The Shining. Mm -hmm. Recently saw Misery, which I think is a is a pretty good yes. picture. Uh, Kathy Bates, yeah. I mean, it's it's just uh, I I think those types of movies work really well for Stephen King and his material. I I did have a chance too. This is kind of off subject, 
Blake, but I did have a chance to drive by his house when I was in Maine. Oh, wow. And it's kind of a modest house. He has... Uh, but on his on his fence, his metal fence, he has a couple places have these little dragons and stuff. So it's it's kind of funny, kind of ominous in a way. The house, I, huh. yeah. Interesting. Um, so that's that's kind of off the subject. But I do like the Dead Zone, and there are a lot of entry points to kind of talk about this movie. But the ideas are really what stood out to me, and I think the plotting is okay. Uh, the movie. Mm-hmm jumps from scenario to scenario in the middle we get mm-hmm. this murder mystery that i think could have taken up the whole movie and would have been oh, great uh and then the the pol- the politician played by martin sheen comes in towards towards the latter part of the movie and and it feels a little quick so it does mm-hmm. it does seem like it is the adaptation of a longer book uh but yes. i i do like i do like these ideas at the beginning we get these ominous shots of suburbia and the film seems to communicate this idea that many people shroud their evil and that evil is often hiding in broad daylight and we can't always see it. And our hope, the hope that's in us, and even though Stephen King's Films that I have seen seem to be dark. There seems to be this this push towards hope, that there is something there. There's hope that that evil will one day be brought to the light. And this this movie kind of skirts around that. What does that look like? What does that seem like? And, you know, it's kind of like what you mentioned with Christopher Walken. His performance works mostly for me. I would say, is it is it a good performance? Yes and no. It's good in that, yes. <laughs> in, in good that it, it, it's Christopher Walken, and he is he is fun to watch. And you know the scene where he's telling the dad, "Hey, your kid's gonna fall through the ice." It's it's just mm-hmm. it's just kind of delicious to see all yes. of that kind of going on. Uh, and then too, I wanted to talk to you about this, Blake. The Christian themes in this movie. So at one point, we get this sign in the house because Walken's parents. They are Christians. They do talk about God delivering him, him having a purpose. Did God bless him with this gift? He, of course, is angry. Uh, But there is this sign that says, Christ is the head of this house, the unseen guest at every meal, the silent listener to every conversation. And I'm thinking about... Once again, the idea that there is someone who sees everything. And we we get that specifically in this character. And I I would love to just kind of perhaps explore more of Stephen King's uh, work, but also have a conversation with him because I did I did watch a few years ago the 112263 miniseries with James Franco that I, that I think is fine. But there's, mm-hmm. there's definitely this idea here that sometimes bad things happen and they can bring about good. And that sometimes we don't always see how the allowance of evil could help. And this film is, is like you said, looking at that question of, well, is it okay for something bad to happen in order for greater good to occur. And it's just kind of yeah. fun to watch that play out over the course of this film. 
Well, it's it's really fascinating to see because uh, there's a scene with uh, Tom Skerritt, uh, Sheriff Bannerman, where he's coming to uh, meet Johnny to ask for help to find this serial killer. And he basically, right before he leaves, he says, I just figured I would ask you, and, and since God chose to give you this gift... Uh, that you might help, you know, or something similar to that. And in that moment, we see that 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 anger that you spoke of in Johnny, where he goes off and says, "Oh, a gift! You you think God has blessed me with a gift? Uh, what about the loss of job and the loss of um, my my girlfriend and the loss of all this opportunity I had before? And then on top of that, this 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 power that I don't know how to wield and." And this idea that that suffering is something that we can we can ultimately be angry about, uh, and we can we can yell at God about, and yet, like you said, good can come out of that if we recognize, um, if we place it in in, in a proper in a proper um, space, um, mm. in the sense that we're not. We're not seeing it as this is the reason I am the way I am, but that suffering allows us to reach out to others. Um, it's it's this idea that like suffering that leads to inner like basically focusing on yourself is going to be a torturous suffering, uh, but the suffering that leads us to help others is is a suffering that will ultimately free us and and heal us uh, because the that should be the, the point of suffering. It's the suffering is always other focused. And so whenever he starts, he's angry in the moment at God. But as we see, as the movie goes along is he starts to realize, no, I have this ability and, and I can help people because I've been through the suffering. I, I know what it's like to lose these things and to lose, a you know, to lose people. Uh, at that point he had lost his mother. And so, mm. And so it's it's this idea that like suffering can lead to things, but it's not a it's not something that we should be focused on building a grand conspiracy of why we we did like why we became became the people we did, you know this idea that whenever people are grieving, you know the 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 cliche is oh God had a reason for this. Well, yes, okay, he might. <laughs> But that's the last thing you want to tell people. Mm -hmm. um, it's, it's we don't need to be focused on that. We need to be focused on uh, uh, being silent in that moment and allowing the people to realize how their suffering can be beneficial uh, to others. Uh, and and I think that's that's the beauty of of kind of the the push of the film is that you start to see that through several moments of frustration and anger, you see Johnny start to realize that no there are different ways i can help people and it's not just with these powers i, I can continue to teach the coma did not take that away from me and and in the midst of that he's able to help save some of the uh children he's tutoring and and various things like that and so he's starting to find a balance um until his world kind of becomes uh, spun out of control towards the end with the congressman mm -hmm. Um, so it's kind of like this for him. It's almost like this uh, this drop in a pond, and he feels this pain, 
and how, you know how how could anything come out of this? And then he helps save a child, and then he stops a serial killer, and then he mm-hmm. helps save a child that he cares about, and then the question of well, could this actually save? the entire world it's it really is this kind of fun ripple and then too there's also this there's also this deep-seated fear in this movie and it seems to be with the fear of anonymity and the the fear of being left behind of course johnny smith john smith being just another face in the crowd being left behind by the woman that he cares about also, it takes Johnny a little while to realize his power because there's almost this lack of physical touch outside of maybe just his parents or, or someone else. And mm-hmm. so there is this sense of wanting to be touched by other people, this maybe fear or saving that or what that means to him. And ultimately, that leads to to empathy. And then there's also the subplot of him, uh, Johnny being in the house and not wanting to go out and realizing that empathy is a very hard, difficult road to travel. And it you know almost reminds me of, of unbreakable. It's that it's that great power that can help people, but also really hurts because, you experience their fears and their pain. And so being a pastor, I totally get that because people are coming to you and they're talking about some heavy stuff and you're carrying those burdens. Same thing for for maybe teachers or counselors or therapists or people in law enforcement, individuals who are carrying these burdens in order to help the people around them. And so, yeah, mm-hmm. while while there are points in this movie where I think to myself, ah, oh, that's a that's a little odd or that's a little strange, yeah. ultimately I think this movie is pretty successful because it nails some of those themes and some of those ideas. And, it, I mean, we can kind of go back to It Chapter 2, which didn't nail any of those themes and those ideas for the <laughs> most part. Exactly. Yeah, yeah and, and, and I think I think it's one of those things where uh, I have not read the Dead Zone novel, but it's it's a much smaller novel as well. And so it might be that because it is close to a thousand pages, if not slightly longer, uh, and Dead Zone is probably closer to three, four hundred pages, um, it's easier to, to kind of compile the general gist of the film and the themes going on in it than it is for something so epic uh, as it. Um, it's just a it's a different kind of, of story to tell and 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 while I am actually recently been uh, invigorated to actually read the novel and to see uh, you know what themes kind of kind of run through the novel that are missed in the film and what the film gets right um, I'm interested to see if if like you like you're saying those those elements are as choppy as they feel in the film uh, or if, or if the, that these themes that we've been talking about kind of cover over uh, the, that choppiness as we move from kind of person to person as he touches them, um, and I'm I'm curious. It, it's it's funny that we we're speaking about the the choppiness of the film because it's very choppy in some in some ways, 
but there was a TV show in the early 2000s that was called The Dead Zone. It had Anthony Michael Hall playing Johnny Smith. Uh, and it was a Monster of the Week kind of TV show. He would he would uh, solve a problem every week. And so it's funny that they recognized the choppiness of that storyline and they kind of just uh, uh, exploited that uh, for, a, uh, I think it was for four or five season uh, show. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, and it made me... So I, I didn't even realize that show existed until I watched this film and I was I was pulling up IMDb afterwards and that show mm-hmm. popped up and I thought to myself, that actually sounds like a great premise for a television show because mm-hmm. just like we have all these different subplots in the movie where we get the serial killer and we get you know the, the girl in the house and this and this um, you know we could do that every single week uh, some of the imagery in this film the first time he has a vision he sees the girl in the in the flames and we get a cut to him and he's actually sitting in the girl's bed and there are flames all around him. I think it's just really kind of a fantastic image of of him, not just seeing, but experiencing what's going on. And then I thought um, a, a funny scene was uh, he gets in the car wreck, and uh, he, I guess it's a milk truck. Milk goes everywhere. Yeah. And it's funny <laughs> just visually just to think about, but also the idea of he's breaking his bones with calcium. Right with, yeah, with milk. Yeah. I didn't even think about that. That's that, that's hilarious. <laughs> and so, uh, but yeah, you get kind of the body, the physical touch aspect of Cronenberg here that he would really, I think, exploit to the max with the really great fly that he, as you mentioned, comes out with three years later. Yeah, from very much so, and and I think it's I think like you were saying with that that scene where he's feeling he's in the bed and has the flames literally burning on top of the blanket that's on top of him, like it's this. I really like the fact that Cronenberg was was interested in the the formal intimacy of touch, and and how that brings us into the lives of others, um, and he really gets that across, especially in that scene. Um, Matter of fact, I think that's maybe my favorite scene in the whole film because he kind of just, he really lets it go and says, no, whenever we touch people, we are, this is an intimate act and we are, we are now in their space, in their lives, and we are no longer, um, isolated from them, mm. uh, with that touch. And I think that's really, that's at the core of what I love about this story and about this idea of, of the man who, who can literally enter into the lives of these people and know them on a level that that none of us really know. So Yeah. Listeners, that is our review of The Dead Zone. If you want to check it out, I know currently it's playing on Amazon Prime. So you can you can watch yes. that where I watch that. We have reached the part of the show though where we recommend something to you our listeners from the world of television and or film. Blake, you're up first, and I'm I'm really excited to hear your recommendation this week. <laughs> uh, is it okay if I give a couple real quick? No, I think that's awesome. Let's do it. Uh, okay, awesome. Okay, so I'm going to give you uh, a couple of... One's less obscure. Uh, one is very much obscure. Um, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to recommend uh, The Nightingale, the new film by Jennifer Kent, mm. uh, who did The Babadook. Uh, and this is a much different film. It is significantly br- more brutal uh, as far as the violence that's shown. Um, it's just not one that you want to go into lightly. 
Um, it is a, a very long film. Uh, it's a very torturous film, but the themes and her care in uh, doing these set pieces uh, where this violence happens is just stunning. Um, I I liked the Babadook, and I've grown kind of cooler towards it over time. Uh, but this one, this film made me really uh, want to latch on to Jennifer Kent and any of her future projects, and it is currently my number one film this year. Um, and then the other one I want to uh, push out there is one that is probably not going to be well known uh, without some recommendations, but is a documentary uh, by a Danish filmmaker, uh, Mads Brugger, uh, called Cold Case Hammerskold. Uh, which is mm. about the murder mystery of a UN Secretary General uh, back in the uh, 1960s uh, as his plane uh, crashes, but there is uh, concerns around the fact that his plane may have been shot down and this investigative journalist um, and his partner go around um, Africa, especially South Africa, to explore... Uh, the truth behind this and uh, midway through the documentary it takes a really really fantastic twist that pretty much diverts the story to a completely different realm and it is whether that twist works for you is is how much mileage you're going to get out of the film or the documentary itself i ended up really loving the twist and i loved how he was able to approach it and uh, yeah, it's it's a fabulous documentary. It's one of my favorites in the last ten years that I've seen. So uh, I want to highly recommend Cold Case Hammerskold uh, for your viewing pleasure. Yeah, I okay. I'm glad you recommended that because I've I've been seeing that pop up on Letterboxd and I saw it pop up I think on iTunes too. I think it's I think it's streaming now. And it is. Uh, I was I was like, oh, that that is a great premise. For a documentary, so it's it's nice to hear that uh, you recommend it. And then, I I'll be honest with you about the Nightingale. I'm a little mm-hmm. nervous about seeing it. Yeah, I, it, you know it doesn't <laughs> happen to me. Tough. It doesn't happen to me too often. I feel like I'm maybe at this place where we're okay. Yeah, I watch a lot of movies, right? But but that's what I'm actually. I am a little nervous uh, about watching. Mm-hmm. It's it's a tough film. Um, it is. It will make you squirm. Um, but it's a matter of. Um, how much you're willing to sit through that in order to get at the message that she's that she's trying to retrieve uh, because there's a lot going on in the film it's not just about um, male patriarchy and rape and it's about race and how we how this female character um, relates to this aborigine who becomes her tracker as she seeks vengeance and and all these things kind of clash and and you're starting to see that like there is no there's no real good way out of these scenarios and so seeing these characters try to to try to you know navigate these waters is just fascinating Mm. um and showing that at that time in australia it was brutal um i've read books about the penal colonies uh, the history of penal colonies uh in in australia and that was if there was a film made about that 
I don't think anyone can make it through because it is <laughs> yeah. it is horrific. Some of the violence and some of the the horrific things that people did yeah. uh, in those days, and so. I think because of my knowledge around history in the 1800s in, in Australia, um, I was able to 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 make it through, even though it was still tough to watch, uh, to see some of the messages that Jennifer Kent was putting out there. And I was just I was I marveled at her filmmaking prowess. Mm. It was really really fascinating. Well, it sounds like I'll probably have to check the one out before the end of the year. We, we were thinking about reviewing yeah. it, and it just didn't work out, and you know all of that, but. Uh... I'm sure I'll watch it before I make my top 10 list. So I, yeah. my recommendation, so I, I mentioned some of my favorite Stephen King adaptations, and I, I purposefully let one, left one off uh, because I, I think it's a very good movie. Uh, it's up there with some of the best, I think, and it's uh, 2007's 1408. So it stars John Cusack, and he is uh, an individual who debunks ghost stories, paranormal activity he checks into a quote-unquote haunted room 1408 at a hotel called dolphin hotel and he's going to stay the night there debunk everything and then as you can guess weird stuff happens i think this is a genuinely freaky film i think it's an Mm -hmm. unsettling a scary film and there's some twists in it that are it's just like Oh man, yeah, that's yeah, that's that's scary. So uh, it's my recommendation, fourteen oh eight. Beautiful, yeah, it's that that that's a fun film, and it really allows you to see uh, that that John Cusack still had the acting chops uh, during a period of in, in his career where he wasn't quite getting the roles he used to. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And I know you're a big John Cusack f- uh, fan. I am. So, I am. Yeah. Yes. So. Uh, Blake, thanks so much for joining us. Once again, it's always a pleasure to have you on, especially to yes. talk about uh, the films that we talked about today. Our listeners are probably, tr- you know, probably want to learn more about you. Probably want to read your reviews, especially when you talk about horror films. But at the same time, too, I, you know, I mentioned horror films. You are a good film critic, just kind of all the way around. But where can our listeners kind of connect with you and learn more about your work? So I, I write fairly frequently at realworldtheology.com, um, but I also have my personal site, which is Blake, I call your C-O-L-L-I-E-R.com. You can find all the stuff I've written to this point on that site. Uh, but if you want to interact with me on the social media, uh, the best place to do that is probably Twitter, and my username is at lostinosmosis. And uh, you can... Uh, you can uh, beat me up for my hot takes or, or, or whatever you, you prefer. I, I will take all comers. <laughs> mm-hmm. And I, I, I assume your username is a reference to Osmosis Jones, the Bill Murray, Chris Rock film, correct? Uh, actually, actually funny enough. No, <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no, it's, it's actually uh lost in the cosmos, a Walker Percy, uh, nonfiction yeah, okay. book. Uh, and, and I just changed the, Changed the last word. I actually had a friend who who came up with that name, and and I and I really liked it, so I kept it. Awesome. Well, listeners, definitely check out Blake's work. I'm gonna be back next week. Kevin is back. It's gonna. It's like a month since I talked to him, and so that's exciting. We're gonna have a lot of fun. But we had we had a good times with our guests Sarah Welch Larson last week and Blake this week. Listeners, thank you for listening to this week's episode. It's brought to you by our Patreon supporters and ChristandPopCulture.com. Our producer is Jonathan Clausen, who every week helps us to search for the sacred on screen. 
I'm Wade Bearden, and until next time, this is Seeing and Believing. You have been listening to Seeing and Believing, an official production of the Christ and Pop Culture Podcast Network. Please rate and review the show in iTunes, and check out our other shows at christandpopculture.com slash network. Theme music by Alexander Osborne and Lindsay Miz, used under Creative Commons License 3.0. 